It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is Doug Tallamy, a professor in the Department of Etymology and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Delaware. His research is included in 95 publications, and he's been an ecology educator for 40 years. He's also author of the award-winning book, Bringing Nature Home, co-author of The Living Landscape, and his newest book, Nature's Best Hope. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. Yeah. I know I ask all of my guests to describe their garden so that listeners can get a sense of place as we talk. So where are you and what's growing on in your garden? Uh, I am in southeast Pennsylvania, a little town called Oxford. Our house is actually one mile from the Maryland border, so we're, we're way down south. Um, zone 7, Great. Uh, our, I, I don't usually talk about my garden. I talk about my entire landscape. Uh, so our, our property was uh, part of a farm. It had been mowed for hay. Uh, it's a full 10 acres. So our, ah, our, uh, wow. our goal to, yeah, was to restore that 10 acres into uh, some kind of a functioning ecosystem. So what's happening now is that our conifers are green and everything else is, is brown. Um, we have pretty good uh, leaf fall, so we've got some nice, nice leaf litter around protecting the ground. But it's it's the dead of winter, so it's a pretty quiet time. And so you are, you're, even though you're zone seven, uh, everything in your garden is dormant right now. Well, we have we have some rhododendrons; they're green. Okay. Uh, but yeah, pretty much, pretty much, nothing blooming for sure. Okay, and because for the sake of uh, of all the vegetable gardeners listening, uh, do you do you grow any food crops in your garden at all? Well, we used to. I've got a, a fenced-in garden area, but um, as time has gone on, we spent more and more of the summer traveling, and we're getting tired of planting a vegetable garden and never being home to harvest it. Oh, so, yeah, right. Yeah, so this year we probably won't have any garden at all. But, but we have had uh, the, the usual. We've had our tomatoes and Corn and squashes and beans, uh, nothing fancy, but uh, probably good, nothing that here. A good sturdy basic garden. That's great. I'm going to wax rhapsodic for a moment because I really enjoyed your book. Uh, you expound on several ideas in the book, but in just the introduction alone, you hit on something that's really dear to my heart, which is this idea that as humans, our core issue, and you explain this much more eloquently than I do, but I say that we have an illness, and that illness is that we see ourselves as being separate from nature rather than being part of nature. And, you know, in my opinion, as soon as we cure ourselves of this illness, the better both people and planet will be. But in your words, you said, quote, rather than acting as if we are independent of nature, we need to behave a little more reverently or respectfully towards nature as if we are the product and beneficiary of a vibrant natural world rather than its master. Thoughts on this? <laughs> I should have stated it more powerfully. <laughs> we can't be a little more uh, reverent towards nature. We have to be a lot more because we depend entirely on it. We've been, we've been biting the hand that, that feeds us. And, you know, I understand the origins of that because a long time ago, it was nature that killed us. You know, we, it would starve us during the winter. The wild animals would eat us. It was always a challenge to make it through the year. 
So the notion that we had to beat back nature just to survive uh, is a longstanding one, and it probably explain, explains our, our necessity to tame everything around us. But we have overtamed it to the point where our ecosystems are no longer performing at the level they need to. Uh, some are facing total collapse, and that, of course, is not an option for, for humans because we depend on them. We cannot... We cannot survive on this planet as the only species or even uh, one of just a few species. We need vibrant ecosystems that are run by thousands and thousands of species. That is the nature we're talking about that we are totally dependent on. So we have to give up the notion that, that humans are here and nature is someplace else, and we have to start living together. We've got to start sharing all those human-dominated landscapes with the natural world. Yes, I'm over here shaking my head. Yes, fervently. That is so true. And and you coined the phrase, at least I think you did, uh, homegrown national park. And I think that's your answer to this problem that we have. So what is the homegrown national park? Uh, yeah, that, that is my phrase. Well, uh, I, I came up with the idea when I was thinking about the area that we have in lawn right now. We have an area about the size of New England. It's over 40 million acres uh, in, in turf grass, which is, that is not a functioning ecosystem. So right. I, I thought, what would happen if we cut that area in half? Well, we'd have 20 million acres to play with. And if we revegetated that with important uh, native plants, the ones that are actually supporting our local food webs, we could create natural areas in 20 million acres that right now don't, don't have that. Now, that would be scattered all over the country, but if we do this at home, we could call it Homegrown National Park. The idea is that we could get many of the benefits we get right now from visiting national parks, and we'd actually have benefits we don't get when we go to a national park. We wouldn't have to fight with traffic, um, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't see uh, bison and, and great waterfalls, but, but there are lots of intimate uh, experiences we can have with nature right in our yards if we put nature back there. Richard Louv talks about um, nature deficit disorder, that our kids are not being exposed to the natural world. Right. That's, the, that's, a, that's vitamin N that you mention in the book, right? That we, need, we all need vitamin N. We can go on field trips to get our vitamin N, but... It's much better if you're, particularly when you're young, if you uh, can interact with nature at your own pace, at your own at your own uh, time. And if it's in your yard, you can do that. You just go outside, uh, and and you know that's that's what we oldsters used to do when we were young. <laughs> right. Everybody went out and played, and you came home at dinner time, and and we weren't thinking about interacting with nature, but a lot of the times we were. We were just running around the woods and learning lots of things. Right. So I'd like to see all that back to our uh, to our suburban yards, to our, our rural yards, even even uh, somewhat in our our cities. That's the concept of homegrown national park. And I want to get a little more specific about what that looks like. You talk about carrying capacity, but we're we're, we're going to get to that in a minute. But can you give an example of what a homegrown national park looks like in someone's backyard in, say, an urban or, or a semi-urban area? Sure. Uh, but first of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of the term backyard habitat because that suggests that we can't have any, any forms of nature in our front yard. It cuts our conservation area in half, and it also implies that what I'm talking about is so ugly we have to hide it in the backyard. <laughs> and none of those things are, are true. So what can, what can homegrown national park look like in your yard? It can look like an oak tree. 
a, a beautiful oak tree that um, supports more life than any other type of tree in, in our entire country. Uh, so you may not uh, appreciate the life that's on that tree unless you get up close and you look. You look for caterpillars on the leaves. You recognize that the chickadee in your yard needs six to 9,000 of those caterpillars to make one clutch, to rear one clutch of young. Uh, and they're coming from that tree and other trees in your in your yard. You can start to appreciate what that tree is delivering to your local ecosystem. It's protecting the watershed with its very large root system. Uh, its branches and leaves protect the ground from pounding rain so your soil doesn't become compacted. Its leaves form the litter that uh, protects the biodiversity in your soil. There are actually more species in your soil than there are above ground. Uh, and, and that's all happening from one tree. It's also sequestering carbon. That tree is built from tons and tons of carbon. And it's pumping that carbon into the soil which is helping climate change. And it's the major supplier of, of uh, insect uh, food for, for birds and other, other uh, animals. Oak trees support more wildlife than any other species of tree in our, our country. So it's an extremely valuable tree in, in uh, every place where they grow, and that's 84% of the counties of the U.S. And all that happens right in your yard if you plant one. Right. Yeah, so to to go a little drill down even further, because I, I noticed that on your homepage you have a picture of yourself in front of a microscope, and I also have a microscope, so I'm always looking at the close-up, you know, kind of drill down into the, the details of these things. Um, you discuss carrying capacity, which is, you know, drawing the connection between not only the planet's resources and how our everyday actions affect them, but also for plants and food sources and insects and animals. Can you elaborate on this carry this concept of carrying capacity? Sure. Carrying capacity is an ecological term that describes the uh, size a population of a particular species can become before it stresses the local resources. Um, so it's the it's the um, size of the population that can be sustainable. And that means forever. It doesn't mean just for for uh, a few years. So as resources go to support that one species, they're not available for another species. So you should always think about carrying capacity in terms of its effect on other species. Um, so we humans have increased the carrying capacity for ourselves, but only by taking away from everything else. And that's why we have threatened extinctions. We're actually in the sixth great extinction today. Uh, we're, you know, we're usurping most of the resources on the planet for our own use. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's not sustainable. That's we are above the carrying capacity. As soon as you start to lose other creatures, you know that you are overexploiting a particular area. Right. And we as humans are doing that. But w your plants, the plants that we put in our gardens also either provide for or don't provide for the animals and insects that are in our habitat. And some of those have very, very specific relationships. You talk about uh, plant-host specialization and how certain plants or certain insects feed on only specific plants. Can you give an example of where that relationship is critical? Well, 90% of the insects that eat plants are what we call host plant specialists, and they have that, that specialized relationship with a particular plant lineage. 
Uh, and, and the example that's probably most familiar, familiar to everybody is the monarch butterfly. Mm -hmm. It has a specific relationship with uh, milkweeds, with the genus Asclepius. Uh, well, milkweeds are, are, are toxic plants. They're loaded with, with cardiac glycosides and sticky latex sap that render them unavailable to most other species of, of insects that are out there. They just can't, can't deal with them. In other words, they're toxic. Monarchs, though, over the eons have developed the physiological ability and the behavioral ability to get around the sticky latex sap and the cardiac glycosides. So they can eat that plant without dying. Yeah, you described that really well in the book I, and with photos even. I love that. And I never knew how they how they treat the leaf and they bite away the part where the latex flows through, the sap flows through the leaf in order to then consume the leaf. That is so cool. Yeah, it is cool. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a very simple behavioral adaptation, but it does, it is something most other insects have not figured out to do. So that's the specialization that allows them to exploit milkweeds. But in spending all that evolutionary time developing those adaptations for milkweeds, they haven't spent any time becoming adapted to eating the tannins that are in oaks or the cucurbitations that are in cucurbits or the nicotine in tobacco or the cyanide in cherry. Every single plant has a defensive um, series of defenses, and uh, unless you're adapted to them, you can't use that plant. So specialization is important because if you take away the plants on which our insects have specialized, they will disappear. And that's, of course, what we're seeing with the monarch. We have fewer and fewer milkweeds all the time and fewer and fewer monarchs. And the reason that's important is it's insects that run the world. Yes. Uh, and and we, we, you know, we're hearing headlines about global insect decline. That's not tolerable. Um, nothing else, we humans included, are going to survive in a world without insects. They're vitally important for pollination and in terms of fueling food webs and in, and in decomposition of, of nutrients. Uh, so, so losing our insects is, is uh, not tolerable. It's very bad news. The good news is they're pretty easy to put back if we simply give them the plants that they need. That's what we're doing with the monarch all over the country. People are planting milkweeds. We're trying to restore those populations, and the monarch is responding. It's got a long way to go, but uh, it's on the upswing now as opposed to disappearing. But it's important to realize that, again, 90% of the insect herbivores that are out there are tied to particular plants exactly like the monarch is. If we just talk about caterpillars, about moths and butterflies, that's uh, 12 to 14,000 species in this country that we have to be careful about and make sure we have those plants they've evolved with. And those plants are always native plants because if it's a non-native plants, they haven't had the, the uh, um, evolutionary opportunity to develop adaptations towards it. Right. They haven't adapted to anything we import. You call them introduced species in the book. That's your preferred term? Uh, you know, I've gone. I've, I've used different species, different terms over the years, but introduce works for me. It's it's um, it's not an inflammatory term. I don't <laughs> want to suggest that that these that a plant from Asia is a bad plant. Um, there's nothing bad about it. It's just that it doesn't do uh, the job that we need to be done in our ecosystems when we bring it over over here. And of course, if it if it escapes our gardens and starts pushing out native plants. It's not a bad plant, but it's doing a bad thing. It's invasive, and what it's doing is replacing native plant communities with a jumble of, of plants from someplace else, and, and it typically is, is Asia. 
uh, in most parts of the country. The problem with that is, of course, our insects aren't adapted to those plants. So then we don't have the insects. Then the chickadee can't reproduce and the other birds can't. And that's why we get the headlines, well, we've got three billion fewer birds than we had uh, just 50 years ago. Um, so these things are all tied together. And the solution to these problems all starts with plant choice, the plants we decide to put in our landscapes. And that includes our home gardens. This is the perfect time for me to ask you, what are some of those plant choices that people should make? Well, it depends on where you where you live. And uh, we have a, a very handy tool that you can uh, go to and, and check out. It's go to the National Wildlife Federation website and put in native plant finder and then enter your zip code and the ranked plants for the county you live in will pop up. Uh, there's a similar tool in California, which uh, is is a very powerful tool. It's, it's, it's great. It's called Calscape, uh, and it's actually much more detailed than the native plant finder. So if you live in California, um, use Calscape instead. But it, what it does is tells you which plants are appropriate for where you live. And then you don't have to guess which ones are, the, are going to be the, the drivers of, of food webs, which ones should you focus on. It doesn't mean they're the only plants you, you can have, but a landscape without those plants is going to be one that has a failed food web. Fantastic. I, I've looked at Calscape, and I just I did check out the... Uh, Native Plant Finder on the National Wildlife National Federation website. The National Wildlife Found, Foundation or Federation? Federation. Federation. The National Wildlife Federation's website. And we will have a link to that on the blog post that accompanies this podcast. There's also in your book, you mentioned uh, plants for birds, which there's a link to the Audubon Society's website. They have audubon.org slash plants for birds, but I discovered a glitch on their website today while I was researching that um, once you click on no thanks on the little pop-up, the screen freezes, so uh, and you no longer can scroll. So I have to contact them and let them know about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now I'm a pretty savvy gardener, and yet I have killed so many native plants. I can't tell you how many uh, milk, uh, not milkweed, uh, monkey flower. The it's I used to call it um, Mimulus arantiacus, but now it has a new name, and I, my brain refuses to absorb that information. But I've killed at least three batches of eight plants of monkey flower, and I'm telling you, I mean, I'm I'm persistent, but this failure, this kind of failure, sends people back to introduced species. So, what advice do you have for gardeners who are who've experienced this? Well, native plants are just like any other plant. You still have to follow that right plant, right place uh, suggestion. All native plants don't grow everywhere. And I, I'm sure you didn't do this, but a lot of people think, well, it's native, therefore I don't have to do anything. They put it in the ground, and they don't even water it to get it started. Uh -huh. So um, you've got to get them established, and you've got to get them established in the soil that they prefer with the right acidity. Once done, though, uh, they they perform pretty well. So So it's important to understand what you're starting with, what your soil structure is, how much water you have, how much sun you have, and pick the appropriate plants. But there are a lot of resources out there these days uh, talking about what different plants need. And, you know, you're going to make some mistakes. I've made a whole lot of mistakes. I've put plants uh, where they don't belong at all. And, they, you know, they're either dead or struggling and struggling. And so, so you try again. But do a little research ahead of time and you can minimize those, those mistakes. Yeah, I think that's important. 
and I'm I'm going to keep trying, and I hope everyone listening will keep trying as well, because the native the native nut to crack it's it may be tough, but it is worth it, as you as you've described. Clearly, it has more benefits than we can see. Well, another thing I can say is every every state has a native plant society. Uh, and uh, many of those, particularly California, have some real experts in them that can help you uh, with with particular problems with particular species. So use them as a resource. They're they're there to help. Now we yeah we have the um, Theodore Payne Foundation here in California. Now right. I have some listeners who've requested information for southern states, and you are Delaware, which is kind of the tip of the southern <laughs> tip of the southern yeah, mid- kind of state. Atlantic, we call it Mid Atlantic. Yeah. So do you? have any resources out there that you'd like to share? One of the converted uh, DuPont estates here in in Delaware is called Mount Cuba Center, uh, and it is uh, dedicated entirely to native plants of the Piedmont region. So if you live anywhere within within driving distance of of, uh, Mount Cuba Center, I really suggest you visit that. Mount Cuba Center is is at its best in the springtime, but something is always always happening there, always in bloom. So uh, it's it's a great resource to learn how to deal with native plants. Great. So Chapter 11 summarizes what we can do as home gardeners to restore native habitats to our landscape, like installing small but not large native bee houses, reducing outdoor lighting, even using rolls of toilet paper as habitat for certain bee species. What else can people do? You know, the most powerful thing that most homeowners can do is to reduce the area they have in lawn because lawn is is not contributing to anything uh, in the natural world. Um, so if you can pinpoint an area in your property where you could squeeze in another tree, uh, that would be good. Planting trees is, is easy. A lot of people say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a meadow. And that's great, but that's one of the hardest things to do. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't start with a meadow. I would start with uh, the woody plants, which are, are uh, comparatively easy. Um, but, but, yeah, think about lawn as a place to walk. It is the perfect plant to walk on uh, without killing it. So it will guide you through your landscape. Thomas Rayner talks about lawn as if it is uh, an area rug rather than wall-to-wall carpeting. And I think <laughs> it's a great way to look at it. I like so that. That's the tip. Think think of ways to get more plants into your yard and reduce the area that's that's in lawn. Fantastic. And I know you know in California and Los Angeles specifically, but in other places around the country, there are turf removal rebate programs that are happening with the local municipal. Um, you know, usually the water district is providing that kind of thing. Right. And it's a wonderful program. Wonderful program. Yes. Now, it's tip time, and I know you just gave a great tip. Do you have any other favorite tip you'd like to share with the Garden Nerd audience? Uh, Well, you know, I think a lot about uh, that insect decline we talk about, and one of the major causes is nighttime lighting. People people all over, every building has a light on. Um, We're not even sure why we do it, but we do it everywhere. So, there's two things you can do. You can put motion sensors on those lights. So if it's really a security light, it will turn on when the bad man comes, but it'll be off the rest of the time. Or replace the bulb with a yellow LED light. That's the least attractive to insects. Uh, and if everybody did that, we could save billions of insects literally overnight simply by changing the light bulbs. Um, wow. So that's a powerful thing that every homeowner can do. And to save billions, is it because they are flying? They can, you know, like fly toward the light. It's so beautiful. Is that what they're doing, or how, what else? What else? How does it affect them? Yeah, we're still not sure why why uh, so many insects are attracted to light. 
uh, but they are. And they will fly around that light until they exhaust themselves or the bats come and pick them off or they sit on the, the, the wall next to the light and then the birds get them in the morning. But uh, lights are usually a one-way trip for, for insects. And when it burns every night of the year, it really depletes your local population. Wow. Okay. You've, you've got me thinking because I have a beehive on the on the outside of a building where I keep my grow lights. And when I'm starting seeds in spring and in fall, there are periods of time where that grow light is on up until about 11 o'clock at night. And then it goes off and I go out there and the bees are clinging to the screen outside the building. Yeah. So I need to put up curtains. Uh, That would help. Yep. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much, Doug, for your time and for being on the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast. You're quite welcome. Where do people find you? Uh, they can go to bringingnaturehome.net, uh, or they can go to the University of Delaware's uh, website. All right, Garden Nerds, you'll find a link to Doug's website at gardennerd.com this week. We'll also share a link to where you can donate to support Doug's future research efforts, because you can see he's doing that, a lot of great yeah. work out there. <laughs> You're the first person that's ever suggested that, and I appreciate that, because uh, our research needs help. Oh, good. Well, I'm happy to share. I'm always helpful. I mean, as much as I can help promote people's work, it's, you know, this is what we're here for, right? So there we go. All right. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple podcast or wherever you listen, visit us for tons of free gardening information at gardennerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on garden nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under garden nerd one on Facebook as gardennerd.com. And of course our garden nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening.